The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Dr. Elizabeth Taylor of the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University. And I'm joined today by a very new staff member at the Centre for Urban Research, Chris DeGruja. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Liz. Now, where have you joined us from? I've come from Monash Uni, um, where I was there for a few years, uh, doing public transport research. So I thought I'd ask you today about some of your past research on transport, particularly in relation to apartment buildings in Melbourne, because I think that's something that people have different opinions about and you have some pretty interesting data on that. But I'll start by asking you, how did you come to arrive at RMIT in terms of your career, your research interests? Well, I've, uh, I've been in the industry for sort of 10 to 15 years in transport planning and I did a PhD at Monash after that time in industry and uh, the main sort of motivation for doing that was that I was writing a lot of travel plans for new developments which are essentially a, a transport plan for, for individual buildings and um, and I always questioned um, myself, well how effective are these, how effective are these travel plans? So I went to do a PhD at Monash and continued on as a research fellow afterwards and worked there for a a few years but then um, an opportunity came up at RMIT to undertake a, a research fellowship and that's where I thought it would be good to continue the research on uh, new developments and, and, and look at that in a bit more detail. And I understand you're a, a lapsed civil engineer, is that right? Transport well, engineer. Yeah, I, I did start as a, <laughs> as a traffic engineer um, many years ago. I did an engineering degree and I actually was based in an engineering faculty at, at, uh, at Monash, mm-hmm. but um, never, yeah, I never worked at, as an engineer that much and um, more in the planning area. What I wanted to ask you about specifically was, well, we have a paper that I read recently was Understanding Travel Plan Effectiveness in New Residential Developments. Within that is actually an exploration of the transport patterns of people living in new apartment developments in Melbourne. I understand this is just one paper of a few out of that study, but we could start by just defining what a travel plan is. I know you briefly said that, but who is a travel plan typically prepared for and, and why? It's an official document, right? It is, yeah. So it's a, the, the physical form of it is a document. And I think the, the term travel plan isn't the best one to describe what they are in the transport context, but they're essentially a, a mechanism for delivering a number of initiatives or facilities at an individual building or a site to manage car use. And typically they're developed for, for workplaces and schools um, that are already in place that are experiencing some local transport issues. Um, but more recently, over the last 10 years, they've been required for new buildings and new and expanded buildings. And in Melbourne, that's often taken the form of new apartment mm-hmm. buildings uh, as a way to try and manage car use and promote the use of other modes of transport at those buildings. Is it also a mechanism that's used, say the developer wants to justify the proposal, they're saying that this won't affect the surrounding road network because we are managing the car use in our apartment? Yeah, yeah, and it has been used by developers in that way to, to say, well, we don't need as much car parking as at our development because we have a travel plan and we're going to do all these things to, uh, to manage car use. 
And, but it's also seen by some developers in interviews we did um, as a selling point for their developments, that they're offering something extra to the future residents, that they're, they're actually concerned about the way people people um, are going to be travelling and what their, their needs are. So they might offer, within that plan, they actually have a kind of package of things sometimes. Yeah, so there's heaps of different things that developers have offered, but common initiatives are uh, Mikey tickets, so public transport tickets. The, the duration of those varies. Some have only offered sort of one week of travel. Others have offered a full yearly ticket. Others have provided more bicycle parking and repair equipment as part of the development. Uh, and others have also done things like putting a car sharing service in the development so that where people do need a car, they can rent it by the hour rather, rather than having to own their own car. And there's been plenty of other initiatives as well. A very common one is information, providing information about transport options in the area that people may not always be aware of. Yeah, and yeah. That, that sort of taps into, I guess, some of that literature to some extent saying that when people move, that's when they're most likely to uh, establish a pattern of, of transport or habit. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, that we we are creatures of habit. So um, in a time of change, it's a, a good time to tap into how people are actually travelling. So um, what you wanted to, home. to explore in, in this research on travel plans was, so the developers offer this package of stuff, uh, tickets, bike parking, um, car sharing, other kind of information, etc. Does that actually influence how, to what extent people use cars and own cars? Yep, exactly, yeah. So to what, to what extent has it influenced car use, um, car ownership as well? Um, how, what effect is it having on car parking and bicycle parking areas? Um, so in general, how effective? Have these travel plans been in meeting their objectives? So how did you set out to find out? Yeah, so it took a lot of thought because um, traditionally travel plans have been evaluated using a before and after survey. So before the travel plans implemented, a survey of users at the site is done, and then after the travel plans implemented, you do the same survey and you compare the two. And you can't do that because they're new. Absolutely. So yeah, new development, the building's new, so we don't have any idea of what happened before uh, because the development didn't exist. So what we tried to do was try to find similar buildings that didn't have a travel plan, but were in, had similar characteristics to the sites with the travel plans. And we chose buildings that were relatively close in distance, generally within 200 metres of the buildings with travel plans. And we had four buildings that we looked at that had travel plans and four corresponding buildings without travel plans, which we called our control sites. And they're all apartment buildings in Melbourne? They are, yeah, they were. And um, they're, uh, some of them have got um, a bit of you know retail office on the ground floor or the first two levels, but they're predominantly apartment buildings. In the inner Melbourne? In, in, in inner Melbourne. Most of them were in within five kilometres of Melbourne CBD. Um, and they're from similar, they're, they're all new, so the, your travel plan and your control group were all built at similar times? Yeah, they were similar times. We tried to match them up as best we could. Uh, the earliest one I think was built in 2009, um, around that year. Um, so they're all relatively new buildings. Um, we tried to also match them up based on the the mix of uh, one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom apartments, mm -hmm. um, the percentage of owner occupiers, and a whole lot of other things that may influence the magnitude of travel that's happening from those buildings. So how did you go about finding out 
what the travel patterns were at these sites? Yeah, so we, well, we had to basically do counting. So we had to count people and we had a team of students who helped with this where we, we stood out the front of every entry and exit of each building and counted the number of people going in and out and where possible by their transport mode. So we could generally see if someone was going in and out by a bike or if someone was coming out by car or walking to their car on the street. Mm-hmm. What we couldn't do was un- tell whether someone was using public transport. Mm-hmm. So we lumped walking and public transport trips together in mm-hmm. our analysis, but we were mostly interested in car use. So um, to what extent were car trips different? We did the counts at the same time at the case sites, the ones with the travel plans, and the control sites, the ones without the travel plans, to ensure they were comparable. Literally the same time? Yeah, so we had two teams of people, literally the same time, and they were done in peak periods during the week, and then also on the weekend to get a, an indication of week, weekend travel. Um, but we also, not just the counting, we, we looked in their car parking areas mm-hmm. and their bike parking, counted the number of car spaces that were available and the spaces that were used at the time of the count. And that was done very early in the morning when people hadn't left the building, generally hadn't left the building yet. And we also did a, a household travel survey. So we put in each letterbox a, uh, information about a survey and we got a number of residents completing that because uh, there was an incentive um, to complete it. There was or wasn't? There was. Um, it was a, to go into a prize draw for a, a Coles Meyer voucher. So it, it actually did attract an okay response. It's still not very high, but it mm-hmm. gave us some supplementary information yeah, about so people's pretty, travel. Yeah, pretty comprehensive. How many people, how many apartments altogether were we talking about? Was it eight buildings? And- yeah, I think there was, across the eight buildings, there was around a 1,000 uh, individual units. I think the biggest building had around 250 units within mm-hmm. it so there were some pretty big buildings that we targeted um, and for those it was a bit trickier because they had multiple entry and exit points for, for cars and for people so we had to have several people just yeah How do you measure the results? I mean, you have a mode share. What statistics did you bring back from it? Yeah, so we we wanted to know what percentage of trips were done by car. Mm-hmm. That was one in- indicator. And to compare that between the case sites and the control sites, we wanted to know how well car and bicycle parking was used and what sort of uh, usage we are getting on a per uh, unit basis, a, mm-hmm. a per apartment basis, yep. if that makes sense. So we did that for both car and bicycle parking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I was really interested to read, but I'll get to that. Yeah, um, yeah. Yep. It might uh, be helpful to give for people that don't know this kind of area. On average, the percentage of trips by car in Melbourne is, is about 80? Yeah, for, for work purposes, it's 70 to, to 80%, I, I think. Mm-hmm. At the sites we were looking at, they're mostly inner city mm-hmm. areas, and so average car use is a lot lower, um, but you're still sort of looking in 40, 40 to 50% car yeah. use on average. And the, um, one way we measured all this was through vehicle trip generation. So how many car trips are made per apartment at each building? And um, Per day or per hour? Yeah, per hour in yeah. the peak hour. Um, and what we found was that at the sites with the travel plans, I might actually talk rather than trip generation i might talk about the mode share which mm-hmm. is a percentage of trips by car yep. at the sites with the travel plans 26 percent 
of trips were made by car. Mm -hmm. And that compared to the control sites, which had 40% right. of trips made by car. That's so pretty significant. It is. It's a, a huge difference, and a difference of 14 percentage mm -hmm. points. So yeah. Um, but one interesting thing about that is that we could say, oh, great, the, the travel plan must be really effective. But there's other factors at play, and there's a, a concept or sort of a phenomenon called self-selection where people who are already more disposed to not using their car may be attracted to developments or apartment buildings with travel plans because it aligns more with their mm -hmm. attitudes and their preferences. And yeah. so that's where we used our household travel survey data mm -hmm. to try and assess the extent of self-selection. How did you do that? It was a bit of a complicated process. Um, there were a few equations involved. Right. but. <laughs> But there's a there's a technique from the health field that we adopted called propensity score matching, where we identified we matched up survey responses um, from the case and control sites based on them having similar attitudes, preferences, and demographics. So we asked them about their attitudes and preferences towards transport, and once we matched them up, we then looked at the difference in their travel behaviour, and when we did that. There wasn't a 14% difference. It was more like a 10% or 11% difference. Mm -hmm. um, so some of it's definitely from self-selection. From self-selection, but it doesn't dominate either. Mm -hmm. So 10 or 11% from the travel plan and maybe sort of 3 or 4% from self-selection. So it is a an element, but it's not dominating the, the difference. And, and a question that came up as well was, I mean, this is not longitudinal studies. It's already pretty interesting just to have that point in mm. time, but... To what extent do uh, residents in the different buildings, the control ones or with the plans, change their behaviour over time through living there? Do they adapt? Absolutely. The yeah, yeah they're, they're, and it can go both ways. Um, mm -hmm. If someone moves into a building where there's a really active travel plan in place, they may change their attitudes and the ways they're doing things over time towards not using the car. But then there could be others who decide to get a car for other reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think over time it's important that we do monitor uh, the travel patterns at these sites to, to, to get an understanding. My research was only done at a point in time. Um, We've got a lot of other research out there. No, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, and, with, and, and it does take a lot of effort too to, yeah, true. to collect it. So. <laughs> in this study and, and other work that you're planning to or have done is around the parking question and it, the fact that there isn't that much information on travel patterns and what difference planning makes and um, where you live and all these kinds of attitudes etc is probably more problematic because so many decisions are made by, by planning the planning system or planning tribunals they have to make assumptions about how people will behave, how many cars they own, and how they'll travel. And currently, it seems like the best data they can go on is, is usually their own experience, or published guides that are not necessarily based on, on a very robust sample size, etc. So, I know you've also looked in other stuff at, at VCAT decisions around travel plans, and a famous case of this travel plan being tested was, was the Commons or Nightingale? Uh, Nightingale was, yeah. And then you see the VCAT member saying, well, I'm not sure about this travel plan because 
Personally, I think if you want to drive to Baldwin, then the best way to get there is a car. I'm not sure yes. he said Baldwin. I just had yeah. Baldwin on my mind. Yes. So there is actually a fair bit at stake. And that brings me to one of my questions around uh, the parking stuff in, in your results. So most of these developments actually had less than the required parking rate. Yeah, right? they, they did. Um, they So the planning scheme in Melbourne at, um, for, well, statewide planning scheme specifies that... Um, apartments should generally have or dwellings should generally have a car space for every one or two bedroom dwelling and what we found was that the apartment buildings we were looking at pretty much all of them had one space or in most cases less Mm -hmm. less than that even the sites without the travel plans had less Um, so the developer had had argued the case for less car parking the other thing is bicycle parking Mm -hmm. that the, the the statewide Planning scheme states one bicycle space for every five dwellings. Oh, so it's almost the other way. Yep. It's like a, a fifth of a, a five fifth. type, right? Yep. So when you went into the buildings and counted mm. how much parking was being used, what did you find? Yeah, so on average, um, across all the sites um, with the travel plan, so it was around, each on, on average, each building had around 130 car parking spaces. But what we found was that when we counted the ones being used, there were only about 90 being used. So around 40 were empty. And in percentage terms, that's... Yeah, that's about 60 to 70% full. Mm-hmm. And 40 empty. Yeah, yeah so... And, in, and in, in a more extreme case, slightly more extreme case, um, one building in particular had about 170 spaces uh-huh. and only 100 were being used. So 70 vacant spaces. Yeah, and... The location, that one was in South Yarra, and uh, the, the cost of just one parking space in a building like that would probably be around forty dollars or $50,000, mm. and you multiply that by 70 spaces, that's a fair bit of wasted resources, I, I would have thought. In an um, expensive area. Yeah, yeah. So, so what, what, can you reiterate the difference between the ones with the plan and without, in terms of the... Um, occupancy rate for the parking. Yeah, sure. Higher in the ones with the plan. Is that because they had less parking? That's correct. Yeah, so they were they were, they were utilised uh, more efficiently. Mm-hmm. If we look at how many spaces are used per dwelling mm-hmm. or per individual apartment at the sites with the travel plans, they had 0.4 spaces used per apartment, but the ones with the without the travel plan had about 0.5 or 0.6. And that was a difference of around 30%, 20 to 30%. So 20 to 30% higher uh, use of car parking per dwelling at the sites without the travel plans. And um, overall, a much lower usage than... than um, they're certainly not full. But, no. Um, which is does have implications. And I, um, there's only been a few kind of sporadic looks at this, but in work I did, I found... This is self-reported data, but people in apartments, around a third of them don't use their parking space at all. So it's sort of in the same ballpark, I think. But what did you find for the bike parking? Yeah, the bike parking was interesting because there was generally less of it provided, and in some ways that's dictated by the the planning scheme to an extent. But each of the buildings still provided more than what is required by the planning scheme. But... Even though they provided more, it really wasn't enough. So overall, across all the sites, all eight sites, bike parking was pretty much 100% used. Mm-hmm. All of it was used. And in some cases, more than there were more bikes than there was 
spaces available. So that's when people kind of double park their bike. Yeah, or just have it sitting there no. near the bike parking area. Mm. We saw in one case about 80, spa 80 bikes in the communal area, but only about 60 um, spaces available. Mm -hmm. And so there was, there was an undersupply of bicycle parking. Questionnaires you sent out. Did you ever hear directly from people living in these apartments about what their experience of living there was and what their thoughts on travel or bike parking, or was it all just like tick the box? Yeah, no, there was um, there was some enthusiastic uh, mm -hmm. responses. I guess um, there were there were some people who actually said no, we need more car parking, despite what the actual figures Possibly showed. Possibly because they don't, they may have two cars. Oh, that's something I find troubling around the way parking is allocated in, in a lot of apartment buildings is that, you know, the overall occupancy might be only 50%, but that disguises, you know, there's 30% of households don't want any parking, and then there's 20% that actually would like more. Yes. But they're just allocated to each. Yeah, room. yeah, so that's some right. some people wanted more parking possibly because they had more cars. Yes, and then there were others who were saying, I use GoGet Get when I need it, so the car sharing service and that is absolutely fine, I don't feel the need to own a car. There were others who said they gave up their car um, after moving in. So this one lady, she said the following, moving here has been life changing. I sold my car with glee, keen for the savings and the lifestyle change. It's forced me to rethink how I spend time and where I spend money. I no longer do huge expensive shops. We do small shops for fresh food and groceries through the week. The desire to endlessly consume is also kept in check. The focus is now much more at home and a slower pace. Even for my son, riding or walking to school with him has changed the way we interact, significantly improving the quality of our time together with a lot less rushing, which is good for everyone, I believe. So it was interesting. That, yeah, that quote is, it's, while it's related to transport, it's touching on so many other things. Which is also true of how people talk about or advertise cars. It's not just talking about the car. They talk about when you advertise a car, all yeah. the time you'll spend with your children and all the great shopping you're going to do. Yes. Or trips, that kind of stuff. So it just, not just, it definitely taps into a lot more than simply what transport mode you, you travel in. Yes, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Um, you, could, you could really see how the experience of moving into one of these developments has actually changed a lot of things in life, not just transport specific things, but more around other livability. Transport is such a critical part of and livability, I suppose that shouldn't be surprising. Yeah, yeah. There's so much time spent travelling that if you change it, yeah, it opens up other possibilities. But then that comes back to some of the further questions around, well, you couldn't take an average Melbourne person and stuff them in this apartment and their life would change. That self-selection thing, to some extent, people have chosen to live in these apartments because maybe they're already a little bit sick of their car. Yes, yes. Other people would really struggle, maybe. Yeah, and, and it's, yeah, it's certainly not to say this is for everyone, and but I think what the research points to is that there is a, a market for this and we need to acknowledge it and we need to provide for it as part of the overall housing mix. There is demand for it. There's been some car-free developments proposed in Melbourne with huge waiting lists. Uh, so people are 
uh, are very keen for this style of development, but but again, it's not for everyone. But it is for, but there is certainly a demand for it. it. Yeah, yeah. And I think it flows through the implications to how decisions are made about these kind of developments and the sort of assumptions that are made. I think it's useful to be able to point to some studies such as yours about what are the actual use rates. Otherwise, people rely on their own experience, and that can have really serious impacts in terms of when I look at people in apartments that have a parking space they don't even use. I think of the, as you mentioned, all the wasted space. Yeah. Cost and yeah. Stuff. So housing affordability, etc. But what are some of the unanswered questions? What are you hoping to? What do you think either you or other researchers need to look at to move our understanding of this question forward? Um, I think there's a number of things that that could be done. Um, there's certainly a lot of scope, I think, t- to look at the concept of unbundling car parking from individual depart- apartments that you, you often don't have the choice um, when you buy an apartment, whether it comes with or, out, with or without a car parking space. And as individuals, if we had that choice, um, then that might lead to a more um, fairer system where someone wants two spaces, they can purchase two spaces. Where someone doesn't want a car parking space at all, they don't have to purchase one. Um, I even uh, I spoke with a friend recently who was buying, looking to buy a, a, an apartment in a new development and it came with a parking space. And he said to the, I think at the sales office, I, I don't really want this car parking space. Can I buy it without the car parking? And they said, oh, um, okay then. And so it wasn't... So there's this kind of personal, uh, individually arranged thing, but they hadn't thought of that. No, and, that, and, and it hadn't really been thought through. And maybe there is more of a demand for that, to, for people to, to purchase parking spaces that, that more suit their, their maybe needs. Maybe leasing as well is another option. Because like, I know there's a, a lot of financial financial processes that put a lot of pressure to purchase the parking space but perhaps if you can then there's as i understand it quite a few barriers to even leasing your parking space out absolutely yeah yeah and yeah there is and i think there's a bit of informal stuff that goes on and And i know i did it but (laughs) (laughs) there's also informal use of parking spaces as in some depending on how strict the owners corporation is some people use their parking space to store their fridge <laughs> yes yes or a couch or a, any any other sort of goods that um in other buildings you can't get away with it yeah exactly uh, but i think another area for research is is bike parking mm. and it's a difficult area because to really study it you need to get into these buildings and have a look and count and without permission from the owners corporation you can't do that but to get permission it does take a little bit of effort on the mm. researchers behalf so um, if we had a better understanding of bicycle parking needs at new apartment developments I think that would be very mm. useful because what I found in my research was there was almost as many bikes in the car parking area as there were cars. But they have to stay in their spot, right? Yes, yeah, yes. And and they're also, the planning scheme says one bicycle space for every five apartments mm. or every five dwellings, whereas car parking is more of a one-to-one mm. basis. Yeah, that is off. And is this also the, it's not just quantitative, it's qualitative. So some apartment buildings will have, I mean, how do you measure quality? That sort of, the way they place, mm 
the security, the how you entry and exit the bike parking area is, is different, and so design questions as well. Uh, absolutely, that the, the the bike parking isn't just put in a dirty corner that's uh, <laughs> that's not well lit or mm-hmm. um, it really needs to be in the best location because you want to be promoting that mm. uh, where possible. Yeah, yeah. So. so there's some even just um, qualitative responses or definitely a, a blind spot, I think. Um, and it sounds like the assumptions around the rates that we, we use could at least be updated. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're based on the sites I were looking at, they were mostly inner city, so it's mm-hmm. not to say that all apartment developments are going to have that sort of demand, but mm-hmm. I think there does need to be some flexibility in, in the rates we apply. So what I'd like to finish by asking you, uh, Chris, is about the other side of this. So we've talked a lot about assumptions around car use and car ownership, and maybe some of those could be uh, at least revisited in the inner city. But conversely, these are still new developments where there's hundreds, thousands of people moving in, and maybe they're not using their cars as much as the average Melbourneian, but they are using public transport and cycling infrastructure more. But does that correspond to an improvement in public transport infrastructure, and if not, what's the pressure, what's what's the impact of these developments on other kinds of transport? Yeah, that's. I think that's a, a really important point, and I think the answer is we don't know exactly what impact they're having, other to, than to say it's putting a lot of pressure, um, particularly on public transport, on ev- already overcrowded services, the uh, number of apartment buildings going up along train lines and the like, and um, people getting onto services or trying to get onto services that are already overcrowded. So I think we've got a bit of a way to go before we understand the, the exact impact these developments are having on, on the network and, and also, as you say, bicycle infrastructure. Some of these bike paths now are getting very high usage, which is excellent, but it's also creating um, a bit of a, a problem around crowding on those on those paths as well. There's no corresponding increase in funding or... No, no, and, that, and, and it's certainly not linked particularly well, or it's done in a very ad hoc way in terms of linking it to development planning. So. Well, anything else you'd like to add about transport planning and apartments? Yeah, I think there's, there's great scope for more research. It's good thing you're here then. <laughs> um, but thank you for having me uh, as, as part Thanks of this. Thanks for joining and, me, yeah. and, and I, as I understand it, you didn't know what a podcast was before, so yep, yep. we're both learning from having you arrive at the Centre for Urban Research. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Greta. You've been listening to This Must Be The Place.